You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Shabas Prakash. Hey guys, welcome back to this episode of Market Champions. I wanted to take this moment to ask you to leave a rating and a review if you're on iTunes or Spotify. It really helps my podcast grow and it helps me to keep bringing on the top guests in the industry. So thank you so much. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today we've got Travis Kimmel, uh, the president of Real Vision. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Travis. It's great to be here. Awesome. So I first wanted to start off with your background and your journey to finance, because I believe you were a sort of software entrepreneur before. So could you talk a little bit about, you know, what you did then with Git Prime, how you uh, sort of switched into finance from sort of being a tech bro to a finance bro? Yeah. So I, uh, let's see. I got a philosophy degree from college, which was uh, tons of fun, but also not uh, immediately useful. <laughs> and so figured out I should go, you know, find a craft, got into software from that, because there's actually a lot of overlap between some of the like symbolic logic stuff that you learn in, in a philosophy degree and, and coding. So I kind of took to that, um, worked for a guy out of Boulder for a while, uh, building websites, started my own little company, and then eventually got s- sort of drafted into the, into a startup out of Denver, um, where we, we, uh, I was running a, a team of software engineers and um, that was pretty fun. I noticed during, during that time that the tooling for managers around software engineering was not that great. And so after a while broke off and started a company with a friend of mine, um, a software company based out of Durango, which uh, everyone told us would not work, um, which was great entrepreneurial fuel because you always want to have some, someone to prove wrong and Raised a bunch of money, um, spent about four and a half years doing that. And then we sold to um, this cool company out of Salt Lake. Um, spent about a year and a half there doing integration stuff. And during that time, um, started getting really interested in finance. And finance is interesting from a couple perspectives. One, it's kind of you know the other group of nerds who are not <laughs> software engineers. <laughs> figured out how to be successfully productive nerds in the world and earn a living doing that. And then um, the other thing that I really like about it is that it's this kind of infinitely deep well. Like you can keep learning about it forever. And yeah. you know the game just gets bigger and bigger and bigger as you well know. Um, and that was kind of my, my intro to finance. I, I, went on, I went on Reddit and decided there's this uh, subreddit that aggregates all of the hedge fund letters. So I was like, I'm just gonna read all these hedge fund letters going back for like a year. And see if I can understand what they're talking about. And, is that R slash security analysis? Is that the one? Yes. Here? Yes. I love that one. Yeah. Super interesting stuff on there. Um, and so read a bunch of those, quickly realized that no, I could not understand them. And then <laughs> found, <laughs> found real vision in, in an attempt to, to correct that lack of understanding. Got really into learning about macro and then eventually connected with Raul and um, came on board to help, help take it to the next level. Got it. 
So, you know, when you go on security analysis, most of the letters are sort of, you know, value investing, people trying to find undervalued companies, et cetera. So, you know, how did you decide to make the shift from sort of understanding, you know, value investing to more of the macro uh, style of investing? I guess the, you know, value investing is super interesting stuff. I still am really, really very interested in that. Um, the thing that was useful about starting to learn macro is that it seems like the the value of value investing as an approach is is itself sort of cyclical. And we yeah. um, appear to not be in one of those cycles <laughs> as much to the chagrin of value investors everywhere. Um, yeah. We appear to be in another part of the cycle where, right. you know, growth and um, and things like that are doing well. And then um, in an effort to, to learn why macro sort of came up and then um, eventually is also learning about like market structure, because I think that's also a huge component of what's going on right now is, you know, you have right. all of this volatility trading that really kind of becomes the tail that wags the dog when there's enough of it going on. Yeah. And, you know, when you were at Subprime, uh, when you were at Get Prime, um, you, uh, you know, you sort of joined the Y Combinator um, yeah. thing with Paul Graham. So could you talk a little bit about that, how you got into Y Combinator, what Paul Graham yeah. is like? You know, I'm a bit yeah. of a Paul Graham fanboy, so... <laughs> <laughs> Everybody should be a Paul Graham fanboy. He's awesome. Um, yeah, so so Y Combinator is really wild. It's very cool. Um, the best way that I would describe it is it's sort of like, you know, I didn't go to a, like an Ivy League school. And, and if you do do that, you get a bunch of really awesome connections that are, that are super valuable. Um, y Combinator, if you get in, is sort of like an instant network like that. So right. there, there's a bunch of other entrepreneurs who are, typically right around your stage who are running into the same problems. And, um, and, and it's a great network of fellow entrepreneurs. Like as an example, you know, we had started the software company and knew nothing about sales. So we were just trying to hustle and ran into this guy who was like, yeah, we're, you know, we're sending outbound emails. We're just doing like cold calling via email, which had never even really occurred to us. Um, and we started doing that and it led us down this really journey of like really extremely high touch, um, cold outreach emails that was super successful. And we just kept getting, you know, more and more of these really ripping ideas like that, that helped us, um, that helped us scale. And they bring in a bunch of, of, they give you a lot of access as well. So they'll bring in, you know, like the founders of Airbnb to talk about their startup and they'll, um, and they'll give an hour talk and then sort of an open Q and A. It's really cool. Um, and, and I would say, you know, every it's common for, for VCs and sources of funding, which Y Combinator is, cause you get a little check of seed money along with that. It's common for them to say that they're really founder friendly, but Y Combinator is like one of the most absolutely founder friendly organizations ever. I mean, they really have your back. So we're lucky to get in there. Right. So do you know Brian Chesky? I No, not personally. I, I mean, okay. met, he wouldn't remember me. <laughs> I met him <laughs> in passing in a, in a room with like a hundred other people. <laughs> right. So let's get into uh, your rather, as you call them, questionable opinions. And now I wanted to start off with a non-financial questionable opinion. And that is, why do you think philosophy degrees are actually valuable? Uh, you know, a lot of people, if you were going to college, they would say, you know, yeah. don't, go to, don't go into philosophy, either study, say, computer science or get a BBA or something like that. So now why are philosophy degrees valuable? 
I think the value of a philosophy degree is that it teaches you um, how to be disciplined in your thinking. So it, it depends a lot on the style of philosophy. There's, there's um, two dominant traditions. One is the continental tradition, which is like, you know, Nietzsche and Hegel and, um, and all that stuff's fascinating. I didn't focus a ton on that. Um, the school that I went to was more of the analytical tradition. And so, you know, we studied a lot of, it's, it's sort of like words as weapons. <laughs> it's how to, how to construct a really tight argument and or break down an argument that's, that has flaws in it. Um, I found that whole thing fascinating, as as you can probably tell from my Twitter presence. It's still, <laughs> still a hobby, um, but I really like the I really like the approach of um, of learning how to think in a way that mattered, because you know thoughts are cheap. Like everybody has thoughts, but if you can figure out how to create thoughts that are that have impact on the world because they're stable and they have better structure, that's kind of what a philosophy degree does. And I think you know for a long time I, I sort of laughed about having a philosophy degree. I love doing it. Um, I didn't think it was that applicable. And the more, the deeper I've gotten into my career, the more I've realized it's pretty good. It doesn't give you a trade right out of school. And that's the downside. Yeah. Um, something yeah, I, like CS does, and that's fantastic. And, and those degrees are also, are also really good. But I think there's still a place for the, you know, learn how to think. And you've probably read about George Soros using philosophy and, you know, Karl Popper's idea is to build hypotheses. And, you know, you probably were attracted to that. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very into like the, the big thinkers in finance. Absolutely. Now let's get more into uh, sort of the more finance topics. And so I want to start off by talking about inflation and you know, the thesis uh, or the reflation trade as it's become known. So now, number one, why is the reflation trade wrong? What's going on? When would the people who believe in reflation have wrong fundamentally? Yeah, so, you know, first off, it's not wrong yet. I mean, they're doing pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think over the long haul, there, there are a couple different ways to think about um, how inflation happens. And, and you, you know, you look out there and you, you see people sort of talking about it. And one view is that it's all about the supply side of money. And if you increase the amount of money in circulation, then you'll get inflation. And I think that, you know, that's not like most things, it's not untrue, but I don't think it's the whole truth. Um, because one of the interesting things about our, our economy is we have a, we create debt-based money. So debt-based money is both a, a supply and demand artifact. Like when you create um, a dollar of debt, you have also created a dollar of future, or sorry, one dollar of future demand. Yeah. So you've created a dollar, you created one dollar of dollar supply, and you've created a dollar of future dollar demand, and even then a little bit more, because you have to pay interest on that. So as you're increasing the money supply via debt, you are also ramping the de the demand side, of, the future demand side um, of dollars, and so. There's a way in which that method of running a money supply, it, it prevents hyperinflation because you have this demand pair with yeah. the supply. Um, but you can also get these pulses where like if you create a ton of debt out of nowhere for a while, you know, that demand is lagged into the future before it hits. Um, so I think right now, one of the things that, that's happening is we have created a bunch of debt all at once and you are seeing these price distortions as a result, you know, that, that money has to flow into things. But over time, 
I don't think that it's um, structurally inflationary in the way people think. And, and one of the reasons is that we, we already had a lot of debt. Like we are loaded with debt. The private sector has debt, the public sector has debt, the government has debt. Yeah. And all that debt needs to be serviced. Government, that's a little different. But um, when you have a lot of uh, private and public sector debt, you know, you have this constant demand pressure for dollars. And there's international debt, there is euro dollar debt. Um, and as you, as you build that sort of crushing demand for dollars, um, it becomes this process of kind of kicking the, the can down the road. And if you can't issue enough debt, um, new debt, you will run into the opposite problem where you have all this sort of uh, demand for dollars coming in and there's not uh, an equal ramping of supply at that point in time. I've always found it useful once I started to understand this stuff to think of money as temporal. And, and one of the best ways to measure supply relative to, to demand is the yield curve, right? It shows yeah. you points in the future where people, where, where people think that there's not enough money. And when you get a yield curve inversion, it's actually pointing to a thin spot in the future of money supply. Um, so I think one of the things that has happened recently is that, you know, that money does have to flow into somewhere. It also has to get paid back. Um, and, and businesses are getting destroyed. <laughs> like there is a lot of, a lot of the revenue generation potential in the economy is getting crushed. Right. You know, small businesses are closing. There's a bunch of, there, there's a lot of revenue that, um, that hasn't been booked because people aren't eating out. The service sector is getting hit particularly hard. And when we look at, at CPI, um, you know, you unpack that thing and service sector has been pretty mangled. Um, uh, stuff, people buying stuff is actually up. And, and what I believe that represents is a transfer of um, capital people had into buying things but that also reduces the future demand for things because they've, you've pulled forward a lot of this consumption. Like if you buy an exercise machine because the gym's closed, you're not going to need another one next year. So I think we're in this period of time where there's been a fair amount of consumption via transfers. We're looking at the CPI and thinking everything's okay. But in the future, we actually have, have kind of weakened the demand for things and the service sector is still kind of weak. So the revenue generation potential is not great. And when we look at what customers are doing, there's not a ton of new customer debt, right? People are a little nervous. So they're not loading up their credit cards and they're paying down their credit cards. So even if you create money through, you know, government transfers or whatever, but that money just goes to feed the immediate dollar demand of, of debt, it's not clear that that's inflationary. It's not clear that the, that as a practical matter, the, the active supply of money is increasing. And that stuff can be measured through, you know, like velocity of money. What you really want to see if you're an inflationist is the velocity of money go up. And we have not seen that meaningfully yet. So I think for, for sustained structural inflation, we'll want to see velocity start to rip, which we may see. Right. And, you know, could you sort of also talk about why the money supply is not really money supply in the way people think it is? And, you know, a lot of people try to confuse what QE is with actually increasing the money supply. So could you explain why that is not so? Yes, QE is a clever thing. I, I watched this video from Warren Mosler. I think is is such a fascinating thinker. He really understands absolutely um, the gears of the money supply, you know. Right. Um, and he he explains it as, um, you know, Treasury bonds are they're sort of like a savings account at the Fed, right? And and when you take those 
treasuries and you <clears throat> you buy them from the market, which is what QE is, um, you, you're really just shifting the duration of money around. So if I hold a 30-year treasury, what that means is I'll get a paid a little yield along the way. And then in 30 years, I'll get the amount of money that I, you know, the basis of the bond back. So it's a hundred dollars worth of 30 years. I'll make whatever it is these days, 1.6% or something um, for those 30 years. And then I'll get the money that I put in out. Um, and, and, and so the, the value of the, uh, of these bonds is that it allows big actors to kind of think about money. Like if you need money three months out, you can buy a three month bond, get a little bit of a yield on it and then use that money when it's needed. Yeah. Um, and so when we do QE, what we're really doing is taking this sort of future money and pulling it into now. And that does have a liquidity effect, right? Like yeah. it increases the amount of hot money, right? That, that's sort of zero duration money in the economy, but it is not a, it's not strictly speaking a, a net increase in the amount of, of money. It just sort of frees it up into the now moment. Um, and, you know, people have varying views on QE, but there are times when you look at the economy, it's like, yeah, we actually do need a bunch more now money right now because we're in the right. middle of a liquidity crisis. And so QE is an attempt to solve that liquidity crisis by just making sure that there's enough kind of, you know, blood in, yeah. in the body at that time. <laughs> and we don't starve to death from, from just sort of lack of, of lubricant in, in, the, uh, in the system. Now, I think critics would say um, it also creates these really psychotic price distortions. And I think that is probably correct. Because yeah. when you take a bunch of money that was, that was imprisoned in time and you bring it into the now, people are gonna spend it on stuff. And they're largely gonna spend it on assets. And so what we see is this, this you know, people talk about asset inflation, which I, I don't know if that's a real thing or not, but what we see is that the price of assets increasing because people are looking for a place to park that capital that was sort of frozen in bonds. Yeah. And, you know, when that is sort of combined with the act of reducing interest rates, I think, you know, together they sort of increase asset prices and, uh, you know, lower interest rates also have their part to play because in the Black-Scholes model, if you have lower interest rates, options sort of become cheaper and, you know, more yeah. people and more people would buy those options. And, you know, and you mentioned that before, sort of the volatility driven buying that's going on in the market right now. Yeah, totally. Everything gets cheaper in the now. Um, and, and, and that, that time piece of money is really important to understand. So, you know, um, part of what low interest rates do is they allow people to pay more for things because the monthly payment that they're paying is less. Yeah. So if you're paying, you know, 20% interest for a house, which we had, you know, really high rates back in sort of late seventies. If you have to, if you know, you have to service debt at that rate, the amount that you can afford to pay for a house is just lower. So, so you see asset prices lower in these high rate environments. And then as you continually press the interest rate down, they, it changes the calculus for an individual actor who's buying something on margin. Yeah. And there are, you know, a multitude of things you can buy on margin. There's the things that we all know about like houses and cars and whatever else. Um, but it also affects, <laughs> yeah, it also affects all variants of margin, including stocks and all that. Right. So, you know, um, about four and a half hours before we spoke, um, the U.S. got a new president, uh, Joe Biden. And, you know, a lot of people have been saying that the Biden administration's policies are going to be, you know, it's going to be more stimulus and therefore it's going to cause more inflation. So do you think that, number one, there, uh, number one, there's going to be 
inflation if we have more stimulus. And then the other thing is, you know, if there is no stimulus, what do you think the impact on the markets is going to be? On the first one, if we get stimulus, um, I think it depends on how we use it. I mean, there's different ways to, to allocate those dollars. If we're, you know, if we're just kind of shotgunning them out there to people directly, then it depends on what they do with it. Like, are they, are they taking that and paying down debt because they are unemployed? If that's the case, I don't see that as particularly inflationary um, in the near term. Now, over the long term, people, you know, they'll have more debt capacity once the economy recovers. And you could see some inflation as a result of that, as a result of people taking on more debt. Um, you know, if we were to take that money and spend it on, on infrastructure projects, um, that could be inflationary with regard to materials. So if we decide, you know, if Biden says we're doing this green energy thing and we're just going to roll out, you know, ev everyone gets solar on their house. Let's imagine he did something like that. Right. Yeah. Um, then you would expect to see some serious inflationary pressures. I mean, you just ramp demand in this specific sector and you'd expect to see, you know, the, the materials that are used to create solar skyrocket. Yeah. So to my mind, it, it's more about um, how the policy is deployed than it is like the raw amount of money being introduced into the system. Got it. So I wanted to move on to another very important topic, which is crypto. And I first <laughs> wanted to, I first wanted to start off with your famous um, the, the crypto that you are very well known for, and that's uh, Tether. So now uh, so I want to uh, ask you uh, to explain and expand on, you know, what are your thoughts on Tether? Now, what's going on? Yeah. So I would start by saying, look, I've always thought um, crypto is really exciting tech. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a tech guy. And I, I think that the fact that we have a new idea about how financial markets could work is, is super exciting. Um, then inside that idea, people are replicating, um, they're, they're replicating old financial tropes in this new system. And one of those financial tropes is like gold, hard money, right? And you see that in Bitcoin. Bitcoin is designed to be a, a scarce store of value. And, um, I think that there, there may be some merit to that. You know, I have, I, I still have open questions, um, about how that looks over a long period of time, there is a, there's a need to fund the system. So Bitcoin is funded, is, is run, the Bitcoin network is run by these miners who get sort of paid and in order to, in Bitcoin. And in order to fund the cost of mining, they need to sell some of that so they can pay their electricity bills, which are at this point still paid in fiat. So there's this, um, there's a constant kind of sell pressure in the network, but the supply constraint can, coupled with, increased demand from institutionals can definitely cause the, the price to rip. Like that totally makes sense to me. Um, you know, it, it effectively works like a lot of commodity markets work, uh, except it, with Bitcoin, you have a really tightly defined um, supply. The thing that um, Tether introduces into that whole ecosystem, Tether is basically a stable coin. So Tether is, it's almost an attempt to replicate fiat, right? It's basically take some fiat and put it on these crypto rails so that instead of me, um, if I want to wire you, you know, a thousand dollars, instead of me having to go down to the bank and pay a fee for that and then wait five business days or wherever it is, I guess a wire is faster. It's 24 hours. Bitcoin is Bitcoin and stable coins allow that to be functionally instant. 
Um, and so the promise of stable coins is this, you know, transnational cross-border better way to send money all over the world. Yeah. And, and I think that has promise. I think stable coins are super interesting. I would expect to see um, stable coin adoption in some form. The curious thing about, um, about Tether is that they have yet, in, in my view, they have yet to produce a compelling audit. So if you're introducing a, if you're introducing a token, I mean, opinions vary on this stuff, right? It's a very charged <laughs> topic. But if you are, um, if the reason that you're buying a Tether is because it's worth a dollar and you can ship that dollar anywhere in the world, that's awesome. You've got a better shipping container, but if you open up that shipping container and there's nothing in it, I mean, that's a little weird. So I think what, we, what we'd what like to see from all stable coins is a set of standards and practices around how they disclose what backs um, the stable coin and, and how people can know that it's actually worth a dollar, that they're actually isn't getting that, a dollar. But isn't that true for all cryptocurrencies? Like there's nothing backing it because, you know, basically all cryptocurrencies are just lines of code. Yes and no. I mean, if you look at, uh, there are stable coins that have sort of better proof of backing. And, um, and I think those have a lot of merit. I think that, you know, again, that's just, that's just something riding in a, in a fancy new container that's faster. Like, you know, we took our, we took our old VW and we upgraded it to a Ferrari and that's awesome. <laughs> um, you know, I think what critics of Tether worry about is that if these, if these um, Tethers are being minted without the, without the need to source fiat from the ecosystem, then they are an unconstrained form of money printing. Yeah. Um, true money printing in a way that QE is not. Because you are not, you know, with something like Tether, it's not like you're pulling forward a, a future duration Tether. You're just making more of them. Yeah. And so if, we, if we're not sourcing assets from the market to back that, then you have this unconstrained sort of perceptual store of value, um, which can increase the total amount of money in the system, as long as everyone accepts that it's worth that, um, to a level that is really just kind of rocket fuel. And so I think the Tether skeptics, um, we sort of wonder whether or how much of that is going on, because we really don't know. There's no way to know. You know, it's not a positive thesis that something weird is going on. It is a concern about lack of proof that nothing weird is going on. <laughs> and, and you know, I think that um, Tether critics would ask the question, how much of Bitcoin's price is from this printing of Tethers that are that are questionably backed into the crypto ecosystem, yeah. which can then be used to run the price up. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is not a, it's really not a knock on any specific group of individuals. I, I, I don't really tend to favor those. Um, I don't think they do anybody any good. It's more a desire to see a, a common set of standards and practices around what a stable coin is so that we know we can trust it because, you know, this crypto ecosystem evolved as a, is a distributed trust ecosystem. And, and an important part of that is verifying that the thing is what we think it is. Absolutely. Now in, in Bitcoin's case, it, that's actually a little less relevant. Yeah. Yes, it's not backed by anything, um, but it's sort of a, it's a, it's, you know, it's backed by belief, like a lot of things. Yeah. Um, and I think that's fine. But if it turns out it's backed by belief and some like weird price juicing, those things have a tend to tendency to unwind rather explosively. Yeah, absolutely.
you know, a good way to sort of visualize the tether problem is, you know, you could think of it as a gold standard, but just using dollars, you know, when you, uh, you know, when you had the gold standard, you know, you sort of had one gold bar for a dollar or whatever the ratio was. And similarly here, you're supposed to have one tether for each US dollar, but you now if people just print more and more tether, yeah, probably, yeah, you're probably going to end up with a lot of problems. <laughs> yeah. And one of the complaints from, you know, from, from people who favor hard money backing for, for money is that it, it provides this constraint on the system yeah. so that we don't issue too much. And so that we don't water down, you know, oftentimes hard money advocates are, are a fan of the idea that um, fiat money should not degenerate over time in value. Um, right. I think there's merits on both sides of that argument from, from the perspective of whether we want that. But if you want it not to compost in value over time, then you would also want to make sure that um, you know, you're not debasing cryptocurrencies that have the ability to affect that ecosystem. Uh, because at some point, you know, people are going to want actual fiat out of Bitcoin. Like, yeah. I mean, again, some people disagree on that, but you know, you got, if nothing else, you got to pay your taxes. This is why there's demand for fiat is because you need to pay capital gains tax and you need to pay income tax. And, and so at some point when people realize a bunch of gains in Bitcoin, they're going to need to take a portion of that out absolutely, to, to render unto Caesar. And at that point, I don't really know what happens if there's not enough yeah. ability to extract fiat from the system. Right. And, uh, and on that note, I wanted to move to Bitcoin and, you know, uh, sort of, you're very brave on Twitter to go on all the <laughs> on all the Bitcoin bulls and you know say that they're wrong. And so I wanted yeah. to wanted to talk about Bitcoin and then ask your view on it. No, you're not particularly bullish on Bitcoin as I understand it. So why do uh, so you know what is your thesis behind Bitcoin? You now what's going on? And I uh, know are you having fun staying poor? <laughs> <laughs> I, um, <laughs> You know, I have a funny history with Bitcoin. I, I bought a bunch when it was like 10 cents. And then um, it went to, I think like 300 bucks is where I sold. I, not a bunch. I mean, I bought like 10 bucks worth, you know. And then it went to 300 bucks. And at that time, I was a starving entrepreneur. And having, cashing that out and, you know, using it to put food on the table seemed pretty attractive. So I did. No regrets about that. Because at the time, the money was more valuable. Yeah. Um, and then... Uh, got back into it kind of early in, let's see, probably early to mid 2020. I definitely bought that big March dip, but I also had some before that. I didn't like, you know, time it perfectly or anything. Um, and, and was, I was pretty attracted to that stock to flow model initially. Um, sort of interested in that and, and independent of whether that specific model was accurate. I could definitely see that there was increasing interest against a reduction in supply. And that's just, you know, basic commodity market stuff. Um, so it seemed like it was a good bet. Then in, I think, late December, or sorry, late November, early December, I started going down the, the tether rabbit hole and realized, you know, it wasn't really a thought that it would go down. It wasn't like a positive bear case. It was more me realizing that I had not properly understood the trade. Yeah. And, and that there were a lot of other dynamics in play that I didn't quite understand. I had already had a tidy profit on it. And so just sold it, you know, got out of the trade in order to investigate stuff more. Um, and my, my investigations <laughs> led me to Twitter. And if you, if you question the, 
<laughs> the glory of Bitcoin on Twitter, you are met with um, uh, some rather persistent um, <laughs> negativity <laughs> about how, how, why you would dare do that. <laughs> and, you know, the more that I got into that um, debate, the more I saw some of those same philosophical flaws in the thinking, right? Like the thing that worries me about Bitcoin is that there is um, a lot of unsound thinking going yeah. on in the space. So that's a really weird put out there as a risk, but I still, you know, it could be my, my philosophical bias and history there, but I still, I still always worry that when, you know, if you're using an unsound argument to make a case for a thing, sometimes that can blow up in your face. And um, so, you know, I, I, I have a ton of questions about Bitcoin still. I'm still poking away at that. Um, and, and I think one of the most interesting characteristics is this idea that you have this constant sell pressure, right? Yeah. Like in the end, I, I think it functions a lot like a negative yielding bond in aggregate as an asset class. Right. So you have this big pool of Bitcoin and from that pool, there needs to be this sort of tithe to fund the electrical costs of running the network. Yeah. Um, so I would expect that this thing will, you know, will run up as long as there's more interest than there is supply. Supply is still pretty thin. Everyone likes to um, promote this idea of just holding it forever. And so that thins the market more and more and more. And I expect it, it, it may continue to run for a while. And then at some point, people will decide that they want to take that value and convert it into like, you know, real world stuff, like a car or a house. Yeah. And, and at that point, if you get more sellers than buyers, I think you could kind of see the bottom fall out of this thing again. And, and I'm not particularly good at timing it. So, you know, I, I slunk off into the bond market where, where, where the trades are big and slow. And if you're wrong and you don't get the timing perfectly right, you know, it's not like as long as you're not levering it up, it's, it's not a big deal. Like maybe you're up or down a few percent. It also means, you know, it blunts the return profile as well. You're not, you're not making sick gains. I'm not driving a Lambo, but right. you're fine with that. Right. And you probably have you probably have like a similar view on gold, especially you know with what we spoke about earlier. You know where there is where there is no inflation, and I can see a safe behind you. And does that have gold inside? <laughs> it actually, we should do like a safe opening. I don't even know <laughs> if I remember the combination of that thing. Um, it was that, that was where we stored our petty cash um, oh, back, okay. back in the day, which is so funny. Um, but. Um, you know, gold, gold's really interesting. I think gold, I, I, gold's grown on me a little bit. I think gold is one of those things that's, you know, there's a time to buy it. And the time is probably always like you just buy a little bit, keep it around. It's a really, I think it's a really interesting asset from the perspective of portfolio construction. Right. Um, for me, one of the things I, I look at is you look back at this uh, 2008 period and there was a point where there's a big shakeup, gold kind of dropped off bonds went way up and, and it, some of that stuff is driven by um, the, you know, the narrative around gold and real rates. And, and so real rates are, um, you know, the, the delta between inflation and what the bond market pays. So if, if the bond market's paying 1% inflation's at 2%, you have a negative 1% real rate. Yeah. And in those environments, gold does really well. I mean, that's part of why it did really well recently. Um, right. I, I, am, I would worry that we are heading into a period where 
some of those CPI elements that we talked about will fall off because of the structural damage to the economy. And that will reverse this real rates dynamic. Um, and, and I don't think gold will do particularly well during that, which I look forward to because I will probably <laughs> buy some. <laughs> yeah, and you know, you're pretty well known for your brave boy trades, uh, short tech, long bonds, long the dog. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So how do you, yep. so how do you sort of time these trades? Um, do you, do, you know, I've seen your post technical charts, but um, uh, you know, how do you use them? Do you just use typical chart patterns? Um, you know, what do you look at yeah. for you place a trade? Oh, well, as anybody who's been on Twitter knows, I'm not the world's best technical trader. Um, I think that the, to my mind, the, the goal of technical trading is to give you a read on where market sentiment is at. Like people, you know, herd behavior follows these sort of similar patterns and, and you can get a sense of the, the aggregate emotional state of the market by looking for those patterns in the charts. They're not predictive in the way everyone wants them to be. Um, you know, it's not an oracle, but it can give you it can give you some really good signal about how people's opinions of an asset are changing over time. So I really like that. Um, I like putting them on Twitter for discussion, kind of seeing you know what other people think of that read. Um, and and in general, I think that they're really useful as a timing tool, or how I use them as a timing tool for something that I I have a bigger, broader macro thesis on. So. You know, I don't really like to trade short stuff, short duration stuff. Like a, a short duration trade for me would be like three to six months. And a longer duration would be, you know, two to 10 years. And so I prefer to find these trades that I think um, are being driven by big structural forces and gravity and then get into them at what seem like opportune times um, and then wait yeah. and just wait for those structural forces to play out. And in the end, it, it ends up being a little bit more like portfolio construction than it does trading, you know, like a, a trade that's about a year, you know, that's a long trade. It's really more just like an, an allocation to an asset class. And so that, that tends to be how I think about it a little, a little bit more. Got it. You know, when you work with people like Rubble Powell, so, you know, how much uh, do you sort of buy into a lot of, you know, sort of the Bitcoin bull, the, insol uh, the insolvency crisis? Do you believe that, you know, we are headed towards an insolvency crisis where, you know, all these uh, long bonds, uh, long the dollar, all those trades are going to eventually come good? Or, you know, what is your opinion on it? Yeah, I do. You know, Raul has been doing this a long time and... Yeah. And I, I take everything he says very seriously. Um, I think he's got, he's particularly good at reading emergent narratives and sort of getting into the wave early, you know? Like you're out there in the ocean and you're looking for the wave to ride and you see a good one coming. That's kind of the, he's, he's very good at that. He can, he can um, read sentiment and, and read these sort of nascent waveforms um, in a way that's, that's awesome. I think a lot of good macro traders are all about that. Um, in terms of the insolvency phase, I, I, you know, I just look outside and walk around downtown. I can see it. I mean, we're in it. And at the moment, there's a, a whole slew of policy measures that have been put into place to kind of blunt the pain. Um, everything from mortgage forbearance to, you know, direct transfer payments, like the government's helping people out to get through this time since we've asked everyone to stay indoors. And that does blunt the pain for sure. But the insolvent, we're already in the middle of the insolvency crisis. Like I can name a handful of restaurants in, in our little town alone that are out of business. 
Yeah. And, you know, you read these stories of businesses shutting their doors. Um, people are behind on rent. I mean, we are in the middle of the insolvency phase. We just haven't felt it yet. And I, I, I do think that that will play out. Um, and I think as it does, the value of having money will increase and bonds are just a, you know, a temporal form of money. So I think they're, I think they're a good bet here. Could you explain why, you know, when businesses are going bankrupt and people can't pay the rent, why are stocks at all time highs? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is a weird scene. Um, I'm not entirely sure. You know, I think, I think part of that may be people are getting a little ahead of themselves with regard to the recovery. Right. So, yeah. so, so I think that the reflation thesis is probably right, but also probably early. Um, and I think a lot of what people are doing is looking forward to this time where we pull out of COVID and as a result of, um, you know, transfer payments and sort of the government splashing cash around, um, things will take off. Um, I just don't buy that because the, the money engine for a lot of people, whether it's their business or their job or whatever, has been really crippled. Yeah. And it takes a while to rebuild those sort of fundamental economic engines, which there's a ton of all throughout America. One of the great things about America is we have a lot of, you know, small business and it's just a really rich and robust economy. And some of that robustness has been seriously damaged. And, you know, Americans are really great at entrepreneurship. And I think we, I do think we recover and I do think we pull out of it, but I think we may start to see some of the, the damage show up in earnings in ways that people will have to react to yeah. um, because these companies are, are worth less. You know, the reason you invest in a company is to get a share of the profits. And when those profits decline, the stock's worth less. Right. And right now, everyone is sort of forecasting a time when they will eventually improve. But if we go through a, a whole year here where everyone's feeling the insolvency, that stuff will start to sink in. And there's not a lot of room for for stocks to keep ripping. Now, it doesn't mean they couldn't go up another 20% before we get there, but right. eventually reality sort of sets in and these things get repriced. Right, and you know, I wanted to stay on that note for a minute. Um, you know, when we think of a recovery, what market uh, sectors and industries do you see destined for growth in a post COVID world and are under a Biden administration? Um, I think that there, I would agree with a lot of the big macro minds on that. I mean, there's, there does seem to be a consensus about what the trade to get into will be, which is, you know, commodities, emerging markets, emerging market economies are, are largely driven by commodities. So they kind of work hand in hand. Um, I think that, I think that those are all the right calls. Um, but I just don't quite buy into the notion that we can like skip forward to the, you know, the happy days without ever feeling the pain. I mean, Maybe I'm wrong on that. Maybe maybe the Fed's cracked it. Maybe, you know, all these things, these transfer payments will, will allow us to just sort of skate through this little rough patch. But it's the biggest rough patch I've ever seen in my life. So I just have a hard time buying the idea that, you know, between here and the time when those trades get really good, um, there's not a big, giant heap of pain. So I think, you know, look to emerging markets, look to commodity stuff that's interesting. It's a good time to start building a shopping list for that stuff, even if even if you're not into it yet. Um, so, you know, I eagerly await um, favorable prices. <laughs> and, you know, do you, uh, you know, you probably agree, uh, you know, with a lot of the dollar bulls that, you know, once we see a spike in the dollar, 
after that, you know, we're sort of going to see what George Soros would call, I think, was a vicious cycle or the cycle where, you know, things go down, where, uh, you know, the dollar will go down uh, over the yeah. next decade. So would you agree with that? I'm not sure yet. Um, I'm still early in my thinking there. I do think that we will, you know, the, the dollar bull trade is basically the everything bear trade. Yeah. I mean, you're sort of saying that in aggregate, um, everything will be worth less relative to the dollar. Yeah. And um, there's different ways to express that. Sometimes people are doing it versus other currencies and that stuff gets really complex really fast. But I do think dollars will become much more valuable as the insolvency stuff plays out and will return to that kind of cash is king phase for a bit. Um, after that, I'm not really sure yet. You know, that, that's one of those areas where I, I think you kind of just have to watch and wait and see how how much the dollar spikes. Like right. if it spikes enough, then of course, yes, it'll revert. Um, <laughs> if it's sort of a modest spike, I don't really know. The thing could just go sideways for a while. Yeah, absolutely. So I've got two more questions for you. Um, cool. Yeah. So what is the likelihood that Tether is a foreign actor who's applying a levered USD short? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, what? <laughs> I would not know how to price that. Um, you know, let's talk abstractly about it. Look, I have no information on that. And, okay. and I don't even know how one would get that. But, <laughs> you know, I think that um, a lack of regulation certainly breeds predators. I mean, the reason that we have regulation is to limit predation on people who are in the markets. So it doesn't seem unreasonable to me that, that some of that might be going on um, as, to, as to who, what nation state it could be. I mean, we know it could be us. It could be, it could, I have no idea. Um, but I, I think that, you know, I had made a joke the other day. That's like, if you're walking through a rough part of town and you see an ATM made of glass, at some point, someone's going to notice that. And you've got a bunch of sort of offshore, you know, stuff that's not yeah. protected by regulation. Right. So I think it makes a juicy target. Um, but I don't really have any info on, you know, whether or not any of that's going on. <laughs> <laughs> and to wrap up the podcast, what is the best culinary herb and why is it cilantro? <laughs> <laughs> oh, cilantro is so foul. It's like <laughs> adding soap to your food. <laughs> I've been informed on, on Twitter that that is a genetically informed opinion. So apparently <laughs> I, got, I got the cilantro's gross gene. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Travis. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to Market Champions. To never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time.